At its opening in Montreal, Guterres warned humanity has become a weapon of mass extinction and that it must change course. Authorities are calling for more sustainable funding models other than loans. Mechanisms such as debt for biodiversity swaps, payment for ecosystem services, as well as greater availability of grant financing and concessional loans must be considered. Authorities say about 4,000 jobs are created through products that contain local species such as alu and rooibos. We need to understand that uh, having gold in uh, reserves is not going to help you the day we see ecosystem collapse. We need to talk about the very banking system and what it does to underpin or not the safety of, this, uh, of human life on this, on this planet. Welcome back to episode four of this season of the Global Get Down podcast, co-hosted by Alyssa and Gaurav. We're joined today by Dr. Peter Orsis, a professor at the University of British Columbia. He's currently the Forest Renewal BC Chair of Applied Conservation Biology and co-director of the Center for Applied Conservation Research in the Faculty of Forestry here at UBC. This episode, we'll be discussing conservation finance, an emerging interdisciplinary field that aims to achieve sustainability within the current global economic system. Dr. Aussies discusses finding a sustainable ways to fund and manage conservation efforts, recognizing that protecting our environment is not just a moral imperative, but also a smart financial investment in the long run, and the difficulty of quantifying almost unquantifiable biodiversity metrics. We also do a quick round of jargon busting with Professor Aussies. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this episode. Could you speak to us just at the beginning about your area of expertise and specifically how your work ties into conservation finance and what work you've done in this realm, just to give us a grounding? Right. I'm a research chair at the University of British Columbia, and I've had a long history mostly in working on plants and animals and their interactions with human populations around the world, and usually from a conservation point of view. But when you think about those kinds of things, it almost always involves people uh, because um, people interact with wildlife populations, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. Uh, and often those negative interactions are driven by economic situations and financial drivers, sometimes at local scales, sometimes at global scales. So a long time ago, I became familiar with those kinds of economic drivers of ecosystem decline. And over time, people have developed various kinds of ideas about how to use those kinds of drivers to enhance conservation on average and ideally the livelihoods of people in those areas, right? And so uh, my background is as a, a, an ecologist and evolutionary biologist who spends a lot of time working in conservation. And as a consequence, has always looked for solutions like this that might help me get what I personally think is a good outcome in the world for biodiversity and wild things, while also trying to do good things for local people who rely on those often, right? And then in just a quick follow-up to that, when you mm -hmm. say that this is, you think conservation finance is a positive development for just this overall realm of getting more attention and getting more action on conservation actions overall, could you speak to us about what conservation finance actually means, what that looks like, and what exactly is being financed, just so we have 
an introduction? Sure. It's a huge field. And of course, <clears throat> in anything that has one name like that, I'm sure you could find both positive and negative examples of how it's being rolled out, right? But let's talk about how the ideal kinds of things would happen. First of all, uh, there's often uh, places where we would like to see lands or ecosystems or river systems conserved because of the importance they provide to wildlife, plants or animals, or ecosystem processes generally that are important for humans. We'll look for ways to enhance that, but almost always those desires will be at odds with someone else's goals of making a living in a more traditional way, like by cutting down trees and clearing and putting in cattle farms in the, in the Amazon or uh, other places, as we did here in British Columbia after settlers came to the area and started logging and converting landscapes. And so conservation finance comes out of the idea, <clears throat> I guess broadly, that we can't conserve a huge amount of the landscape in parks and things. You know that we're on route. Matter of fact, there was just an announcement by the premier last week that British Columbia will join the global effort to get to 30 by 30. 30% 30 of natural habitats conserved by 2030. But most of us recognize that that leaves 70% of, of habitat occupied by humans and uh, potentially converted to other uses and most biologists, I think, if you if you talk to them, would suggest that we probably need, you know, more like half the earth to maintain good, sustainable systems. So what we look for are ways to incentivize conservation on those non-conserved lands, those things that aren't parks. Those might be private forests in Central and South America. Those might be shade coffee farms or cacao farms in the Serengeti in, in uh, Tanzania, those might be the touristing off of that area and or through carbon credits, raising systems. So the idea is most of us would like to see biodiversity maintained and the ecosystem services associated with that globally. And we think more land is going to be required to do that than we'll ever put us in parks. So conservation finance is a mechanism to incentivize good outcomes for conservation on private lands, ideal communities, and health and human services that we'd want functioning uh, system. I can also give some, you know, detailed examples if you want. You sure if you want to give one detailed example, actually, I think mean, that'd be great. Right now, you'll know that um, uh, there is a global effort to sequester carbon by increasing the amount of trees uh, planted. So the 30 by the United Nations and others is an effort to risk. People are incentivizing. So people have to invest money in that, right? You got to set money, set those forests aside. You got to plant the trees, hire the people who are going to do that and manage the forest. So in that case, uh, there are incomes. People invest in that through the classic kind of carbon and or biodiversity credits. People are, are uh, planting those trees. They're accounting for the carbon, which is sequestered in them in a normal accounting method, even like KPMG, you know, accountants does that these days. And, um, <clears throat> and they're selling that on some kind of a private or public market. And so that is where somebody invests money, comes, uh, tries to restore for, forests for maybe multiple purposes. They might plant uh, uh, crops under that, like cacao. 
in order to harvest or something else, coffee. And so they invest money to do that, but they end up having not just the open field afterwards. They sequester carbon, create some habitat for species, and enhance the livelihoods for the local people who are working there. So that would be kind of a classic one. Let me just give you another one that is closer to home. And that has to do with the municipality of North Cowichan, right over on Vancouver Island. And so in that a municipality, they have a community forest and they own it fee simple. That means that they own it as though it's private land. And it's 5,000 hectares, pretty big piece of land. And as a public forest, they can decide what they want to do with it. They can decide if they want to do kind of business as usual and log that or invest in other ways for recreation. Now they could charge people to come for that, or in this case, they could they could also sell carbon credits. So they could get people to finance the restoration of their forests. And instead of doing 30 years of kind of rotational harvest to keep their tax, their municipal taxes low, they can instead look for people who are willing to invest in carbon credits, grow their forest into an old structure, get those recreational and other health values from it, but not lose the investment, not lose the revenue. Ideally, even get potentially as much or more revenue by doing that other thing. So selling carbon credits, uh, other investments in order to enhance biodiversity in ways that you might monetize them uh, would do that. Restoring a forest so that you might enhance water flow for farmers downstream would be other kinds of things where people would think about how to invest and then recover that investment by monetizing the improvement in water flow. I have heard of carbon credits and carbon accounting before, and that seems complicated enough on its own. But when you say biodiversity accounting, that seems like just a whole different realm of complexity, because hmm. how do you physically measure stuff like that when that term is so vague? What, what what's the unit you sort of use? There? That's a that's an excellent question. If it's not something that you can measure, uh, quantify, like as you're right. First of all, just back to carbon briefly. I mean, remember that we have really good information on how trees grow, and one can assess soil carbon directly for various means. So, in those carbon projects, the very best ones, the ones which are reliable and selling you something that you know is going to be there in the future. They're monitoring it in ways that would be like standard accounting practices and satisfy many kinds of people. So when we talked about good and bad conservation investment, the good ones would be ones which have those kinds of regulate, regulations in place so you know what you're getting and somebody's ensuring that you're getting that. Okay, back to biodiversity. You're absolutely right. I mean, how do you measure that? Even ecologists talk about what that means. Does it mean the number of species? Does it mean their genetic variation? Uh, does it mean the interactions among them? Well, usually it means all of those things. And so you look for some kind of an index which might tell you about that. Some people, like uh, um, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature and World Wildlife Fund, actually have metrics for that. And those would have to do with things like species diversity. If they were having you invest in a project where they wanted, where they were trying to sell you those credits, uh, they would provide some kind of metrics to help you evaluate them. I will say that biodiversity credits writ large now are more aspirational. So they're more like something that is hung on the side of a project with a more easily quantifiable thing. 
like water quality, air quality, or something like carbon, which is relatively easily monitored. And so if there are projects like that, and you can demonstrate that there's a high likelihood of, for example, maintaining an orangutan population, where you're putting in some low-intensity palm forest instead of putting in continuous oil palm, for example, then you might actually do some kind of a deal, a conservation finance deal, where people finance that and get le- and but maybe they don't expect to get as much as if they would invest in the highest and best economic use, not without paying attention to the biodiversity degradation. I'll just say, I'll jump to one thing quickly. You mentioned some things about commodification. So that's that's really what you're talking about, is whether you can come up with an index which is reliable enough that you can measure it as a commodity, like sequestered carbon or amount of water or change in the nitrates in water, things like that. In what you've kind of just said, what we're understanding is that relationship between commodification can kind of allow for that biodiversity accounting to incentivize people to invest in this like conservation funding. Absolutely. And and so another example would be in British Columbia right now, the, um, you know, when the premier talked about the agreement with indigenous peoples uh, just last week about uh, helping to get to the 30 by 30. And so that will involve investments, not just by the government, in developing some of those indigenous-led conservation areas, but it'll actually involve the activities of indigenous people more in line with their traditional use of the area. So we think about parks as places where we put everything aside, right? Don't do anything. Whereas most indigenous people would have been quite active in managing the environment. In the Gulf Islands, they would have been harvesting deer because they were growing medicinal plants, which eat those deer. And so they would have been doing various things in the landscape to enhance it. Many of those landscapes are our biodiverse landscapes. And we would hope that going forward, by commodifying something like carbon, so that the indigenous group could sell credits on the restoration of an ecosystem, a watershed that's been harvested, we might also recreate an old growth state, something like those historic ones that were richer and more diverse. And so in that case, somebody might put a premium on the carbon credits being sold in those projects because there's a very strong likelihood that there will be other demonstrable benefits coming out. In that case, a cultural benefit, as well as perhaps a real benefit to say, cooling water temperatures and having higher salmon survival and perhaps restoring salmon populations and increasing the resilience of those uh, local peoples to say food sovereignty or something like that in the future. I know we kept um, this entire, we kept a chunk of time aside to bust through some jargon, which we were looking to get at at the end. But I think your current answer and just this overall, this topic is quite relevant to Goodhart's law, if I'm not wrong, which speaks of kind of metrics. Do you think, could you explain what Goodhart's law means or how it's relevant to this debate? And do you think more metrics currently tend to demonstrate Goodhart's law than those that defy it? Well, so I'll comment briefly. I will say that um, this one comes up. So Goodhart's law, and I think of it most proximally in terms of academic history recently, it's it's basically a statement that says when you create a metric that people will work through or towards to evaluate performance, they'll find some way to undermine it 
in a pernicious way that you didn't anticipate and by doing so devalue that metric. Let me give you an example. In academia, you might know that, you know, professors, it's the publisher parish thing, right? So it was used to be the number of papers one wrote. Now there's a thing like it called impact factor. How many times your papers get cited and journals and people compete for that. And so now, and then initially people start getting grants based on their impact factor or their H factor. After a while, people find methods like publishing lots of short papers and trading authorships with other people so that they can get a high impact factor without necessarily doing the kind of work involved that was anticipated. So the idea is just that when you come up with a metric, people will often find ways to get around it. Now, applied to conservation finance, I think the worry would be related to another term that people talk about when they talk about greenwashing, that sometimes companies, for example, that want to say they go net zero, they might look to buy carbon credits, but of course, if they're not investing in a place where, it's, where it's reliable and where those things are, uh, where the metrics are well, well monitored and insured, then uh, they might say that they are reserving a lot of carbon credits, but somebody's getting around it and not doing it anyway. Uh, I'll try and think of a more tangible way. We could plant trees to create carbon credits on in a South American rainforest using the native trees that represented the historic forest, and by doing so, probably help create an ecosystem which is representative of the one which had been there historically. That would be the goal of a restoration and conservation finance project usually. But somebody might say, well, you just told me you wanted carbon and I can put eucalyptus in that plot. And so I'm going to get more carbon than you are, but they're not going to get all the other benefits. So if you, if you just, if the goal was say, work towards carbon sequestration, some people might plant things which are inappropriate for the area and as a way, they're chasing a goal without actually getting the outcome you intended. They're getting around it. And that would be the kind of thing, you know, it was probably only a month ago or so that one of the famous carbon credit brokers, a company called South Pole, which is active uh, worldwide, was pulled out in the news for being involved with some maybe less than perfectly reliable carbon credit projects. And in that case, they were things like that, where they were plantations, uh, plantation forests, rather than the kinds of ecosystems people are thinking about restoring and that kind of stuff. So because we're talking about bridging these two areas of conservation and business investment, and these different stakeholders and parties are involved, kind of like how you were mentioning, do you think that can create a difficulty in coordinating efforts and coordinating those conservation efforts, especially when we're talking about involving these different fields in what is such an interdisciplinary way of approaching the issue? There might be a lot of ways to think about that, but I guess one which comes to mind is that um, let's go back to a restoring a forest kinds of idea. I gave you an example of like cacao and coffee. And of course, so there might be conflicts in some ways in finding the middle ground between what is good for local people and allows them to make a reasonable economic livelihood and still get some of the biodiversity benefits for one is looking at. So maybe a classic conflict. Well, there's a number of classic conflicts which will come up in some ways. The most black and white ones are when, when we have conservation lands that exclude any activity of local people 
particularly when local people might have been had access to that place historically. I used to work in East Africa where all of the local people used to go through initiation rites in the area we call Serengeti National Park. And now they're called poachers when they're in there going through their initiation rites. And so in some ways, there could be conflicts between what a, say, conservationist might want and what might be best for the well-being or cultural practice of local people. So there can be those kinds of conflicts. And so I suppose the finding the ground is kind of how do we find the, the best situations and identify them? Um, sometimes the problems are that the solutions, even the finance solutions, have come down on from on high international organizations rather than maybe necessarily starting with the kind of grassroots discussions with local people about what might be best for their own outcome and, and how they would manage the environment in ways which they would see to be more beneficial and then finding some middle ground. So I, I, I suppose the problems are probably in that interdisciplinary background of, you know, mutual understanding. But a lot of times people who have the finances, uh, you know, it's probably for them learning about the ecological situations and becoming familiar enough that they're comfortable with that kind of a thing, often at the cost of taking a lower investment. Uh, for example, our Great Bear Rainforest that you guys know about on the coast of British Columbia benefited from a hundred million dollar investment in a sustainability fund, which now benefits uh, through a revolving loan program, Coastal First Nations to develop businesses. That was one of the very good outcomes for local people, in addition to the conservation outcomes on the coast. That money was put forward a zero interest loan by some people who wanted to invest in carbon credits, but they did it at almost nothing. So they had a they that was a foundation that did not that kind of in, in a way gave a grant, but invested in that. It was a zero interest loan, essentially, um, to establish that conservation fund and get that thing going. And I was also just curious with your experience kind of coming from a more biological background, but also merging that with conservation finance, would you characterize your experience as working in this interdisciplinary realm um, as having to bridge between theory and practice? And so what you conceptualize of and what you're able to realize in the field. Yeah, you have to bridge between theory and practice all the time. Absolutely. And a lot of times is, um, you know, on the science side, Everyone does that in different ways. I happen to be what you know a lot of people call an empiricist. I go out and collect observations over a number of situations and try and see patterns and decide how I'm going to deal with it after that. Other people might come in from that theory side and think about how it works. So back to that thing about the interdisciplinary understanding, both those people would have different ideas. Empiricists always think Theorists come in with the models thinking they know how it works, whether it's an economic model or another one. The empiricists are on the ground say, no, no, people don't behave like that here. Things work differently. So there's always going to be that kind of uh, interaction. In some ways, that, of course, is that that is how all of almost all ecological practice, especially in the conservation and management, works out. Because the truth is, you know, we always have a set of hypotheses about what's going to happen if we go out there and add water holes, get rid of water holes, add forests, get rid of forests, um, those kinds of things to the rest of the system. 
but those are always conditioned by the case studies in the places we are, whether we're in a tropical forest, whether we're in a temperate forest, whether in a marine system. And the same would be true in that conservation finance thing, because it essentially involves economic systems, which always have cultural elements to them, right? Especially if there's local kinds of things like integrating the local systems with the global ones is is probably one of the most complex uh, things right now in there from the brief that you sent us and from what we've read on conservation finance there was this added realm of complexity because not only is there a lot of interdisciplinarity with experts involved even this knowledge that these experts like yourself do generate then needs to go through that prism of like the political process so i was just wondering if you had any comments on the attention that conservation finance and similar issues gets at big debate, international debate forums like the UN September meetings, for example, even this year in June, we had the summit for a new global financing pact in Paris, where there was a lot of conversation on, again, finance for climate change, but then just the SDGs in general. So do you think the attention that it got at forums like these were not only countries, not only governments involved, but also big financial players with financial might behind them. Do you think there's enough attention that's garnered at these? I I do think there's enough attention. The, in the finance side, there's a huge attention. There are groups like the Coalition for Private Investment and Conservation, CPIC, you can, uh, and others, who, you know, some people might actually be a little nervous, say, hey, people are look a little bit too eager. Maybe is this, are we missing something? Is there, is this looking too good to be true? And so I think they're, I think it's getting good attention right now. I think what honestly has to happen, and the brief you read as an example, had a chapter in there about blueprints. How would you set these things up? And so really we're at the stage where there are just enough, just getting to be enough case studies, situations of how people set these things up, and then enough reporting information so that we kind of can start to analyze what works and what doesn't. And so is there enough attention yet? Because you don't really want to jump in with all foot two feet until you have enough case studies to know that we are going the right way, right? And so this kind of idea about applying studies, evaluating, I'm thinking about that question that you had earlier. How do you mention measure changes in biodiversity in a reliable way that you can get people to pay for it? You know, how do you get reliable commodification? That stuff is still being worked out. Nevertheless, I think what the emphasis is on now is that, you know, it's it's awesome uh, that in my life we've gone from a global agreement to protect 0% to 12% to 17% to 20% and now 30% of terrestrial environments on Earth to try and maintain ecosystems for the benefit of humans and all the other species when using them. And so things that's changing super, super fast. We know, I think, that that isn't going to be enough. So the attention, I think, is more on what else can we do? How does concert, how do we, how do we think about sustainable economic systems that are good for people and good for the environment? And how do we kind of create the regulatory systems and then gain enough familiarity with it through those case studies we talked about a bit? so that it becomes more of a conversation piece, right? You both are going to eventually, if you haven't already, start saving for the future. You might choose ethical ETFs. 
you might choose other ethical funds. Those are already out there. So we know that there are those kinds of possibilities and they define that in different ways, right? Companies that don't invest in oil or don't invest in cigarettes or what have you. Two other things which might be more more progressive, uh, you know, like green energy only or something like that. I think there's not enough attention for some of us we, we want the attention to remain focused on developing these case studies and for people to developing ways of doing it. But I, I'd say there's still some suspicion. The finance side is very interested. Um, many governments are suspicious. Some civil society groups are suspicious and with good good reason, because um, they worry that commodifying resources will will eventually cause local people to lose any uh, say in them. And so, you know, the governance models and, and how how those things are developed and local rights of local people, that's kind of where we are now. So so there's probably enough pushback also that we're in a good place where people are being forced to try these things and report on them. Lots of academic articles reporting on them now. <laughs> Just jump back in. You oh. did mention, you kind of called back to the entire debate about developing appropriate metrics to measure stuff like conservation finance. And I was just wondering who has the most say in developing metrics like these, because it seems like it's still a work in progress. So is it ecologists or biologists like yourself? Is it the financiers who send the money in? Or is it sort of political forums like the UN meetings? that decide? Is it a general assembly resolution that decides something like this? What's the... What's the There's um so it would have started it would have started the way you just described probably 15 years ago and right now there are organized groups so those people who started making various suggestions have come together and formed groups often funded you know by someone like an international organization so there's one called Geobon G E O B O N and it, there are others um uh that have either proposing separate metrics or are kind of shared metrics. There's probably, there's a chapter on metrics, not to, I can't remember all the details, so not to put you off, but in the brief I sent you, there's um, an, a suggest, there's kind of a table listing a bunch of them. So in some, some are kind of, would like, because it's finance, some would like to be proprietary metrics, like the Russell 2000 index, which is a proprietary stock index. So that's a lot of people approach it that way. They want to have index that they would even have as metrics or sell, almost like a Morningstar index of of that of, you know, uh, mutual funds or something. Um, and others would be more academic and looking for some real quantitative quantitative link between something they can measure in nature and some other kind of thing. And I guess we're right at the place where Probably those global efforts like Geobon are the ones that people are, are referring to most often and starting to link at least their literature to. Although I don't know many products where people have taken metrics other than carbon yet and tried to monetize them. I think they've only emphasized the benefits in addition to carbon, which are going to be there and tried to maybe kind of quantify them a bit, but they're not selling them explicitly. They're more making them a more attractive project. To get back to what you were saying earlier um, about Indigenous-led uh, conservation initiatives, 
I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit more on that and just mention to us whether or not it's something that is taking kind of the forefront of conservation finance or if it's something that is just emerging and slowly becoming more and more relevant. I think it's emerging and, and definitely becoming more relevant. I guess it first its first iteration would have been um, the formal mandates by federal and provincial governments to consult indigenous people or first peoples in different areas as they're starting to develop. That would have been kind of a baby steps thing in, in developing relationships, identifying rights, thinking about treaties, you know, some of the legal kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I think there are a, lo a lot of groups uh, which are doing it and um, most demonstrably in British Columbia, uh, people could look into a group called FNCI, the First Nations Conservation Initiative. That is a nonprofit group which is essentially getting together with a bunch of indigenous groups in BC, mostly so far in the in the north, um, the Nishka and the Treaty 8 groups, um, who are in or have completed treaty negotiations and therefore have substantial land claims that are made. In those land claims, oftentimes there's been historic things already done there. Uh, settlers have gone in and uh, uh, logged them once or twice or more or grazed those lands or what have you. Uh, maybe put in seismic lines or power lines through them, other things which might impair their uh, ability to support caribou or some other uh, species which would be traditionally important to people in those areas. So in that area, as as in um, as indigenous people uh, uh, regain formal rights to many of their lands through the treaty process and other processes, they have the same opportunity, of course, uh, they can develop those lands in any way they like. And so in this case, one might think about conservation investments, investments one could make, which would allow them to uh, which would allow Indigenous peoples to pursue their own cultural goals often in places which are part and parcel with the biodiversity outcomes. So uh, First Nations uh, Conservation Initiative would be interested um, or they talk about ways in which Indigenous uh, groups might partner with private companies to invest in wind power to say fund hydrogen development. Um, uh, or uh, rather than uh, continuing to log in, say, watersheds that are valuable for particular species, uh, you know, revegetating those and growing them back to an old growth state and using carbon credits and or other credits to fund that, but really getting to the indigenous goal of recreating a, a landscape that is more part and parcel with the management techniques that they would have done historically. Thank you. That's super helpful. And I just kind of wanted to touch on um, some critiques maybe that have been made about conservation finance and how those may have been addressed um, with these more Indigenous-led practices. Um, but just to kind of problematize the idea that maybe in reframing um, issues of climate and clean water and you know natural resources as these goods and services, so they fit within those economic frameworks, are we opening the door to this, these kind of neoliberal agenda, or I think the, re the report you shared with us um, about neoliberal environmentalism and whether or not that's something that we should be looking out for, or if there are ways that we can address these issues. Yeah, it is something, you know, I mean, 
it is something we should be looking out for, partly getting back to the kind of Goddard's law thing, because whenever there's a strong economic incentive for someone, we have to worry about what opportunities people might take advantage of that thereby disadvantage someone else. So, yeah, there's a real possibility that, that um, uh, for instance, a local community could come together and decide to enter into a contract with a local organization, with a, a private company about how their lands they have control over would be used. And as a consequence, uh, there things might happen that cause them to, you know, lose access to governing that land forever after in ways that weren't anticipated right off. So that loss of agency is probably the main thing we need to worry about. We certainly know that loss of agency was one of the main things that has been a problem for indigenous peoples around the world as, uh, you know, as people have settled and, and uh, colonized other places. So um, I'm not an expert in that, but certainly it's a very important thing. And there are many people who are interested in those kind of government models and, 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 um, doing that. Sometimes, you know, I guess back to that thing, it will always be the balance. I mean, you need people around the table, that interdisciplinary group, which are well informed about a wide range of views so that all views can be represented. And there's always, you know, the best outcomes are always going to have probably not everybody getting what they want in this situation, because there will be usually be some kind of a trade-off between the human use of a landscape and its biodiversity values. Not always, because in some places where indigenous people, um, like in the Gulf Islands here, in southern, southern Vancouver Island, and many watersheds up and down the coast, uh, the involvement of the indigenous people would have often enhanced biodiversity, I suppose. So, But it isn't always that case. We don't always find those synergistic things. Often when we convert things to cropland, no matter where it is, we we reduce some of the native biodiversity as a consequence. So the commodification of nature is kind of pursuing <clears throat> what Alyssa was getting at when she was talking about the neoliberal agenda and conservation. You know, just make everything ec economically fungible and it'll be okay. Well, you know, that's why we have regulations and stuff. It isn't always okay. So got to keep an eye on that. Because then there are many experts arguing that if you don't commodify these products, they essentially have, I believe the argument is essentially have a zero value. So even if you don't commodify them, they are essentially being commodified by economic experts as a zero value. So something is better than nothing. What do you, do you have any sort of say on this debate where it's just assumed that it's zero and that by choosing not to participate, we are participating, but in a negative sense, at least that's the view that I've heard from a couple of no, that's a absolute. That's a super important point, and it, it is a it, it is a a very good one. If we go back thirty years and think about elephants, um, there we had discussions about whether or not there should be an international trade in ivory. Uh, I'm not in favor of that myself. We could go into the the reasons for that. I've got functional reasons for that, not just emotive or emotional reasons for that. Uh, but at that time, when there was no ivory, uh, the idea was there would be no market for them, therefore no reason to keep them on the landscape. Uh, and that is what happened some places. And so some people said, well, if you have a community wildlife place, there has to be some opportunity for the community to get value out of those elephants. In some places, you know, we think about it as tourism. That's what the elephant is worth. 
It's a capture recapture. Everybody gets to see it, take the picture of it. And so it's value is what it brings. But, you know, you know, you guys probably know, I mean, tourism doesn't run most, you know, everyone knows about a few places where tourists go, but tourists do not go most places. We can't protect conservation areas through tourism. There just isn't enough. There needs to be value. And so they go exactly, Gaurav, Gaurav, right to what you said, the elephants need some value. And so some people argue that in those community conservation programs, often in Africa or in parts of Indonesian Asia, they need to be able to harvest the elephants and sell that ivory because that is the incentive which wants them to have a sustainable population of elephants. Otherwise, they'd rather, who wants to be chased down by an elephant? You know, no, I mean, no one. And so, uh, so yeah, making sure there's value, but that's always going to be a hot argument. And so, um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm mostly on the side of the commodification while being aware of the regulatory structures and the degree to which that can take rights away from people. We know that as you know, we know that up and down. With kind of everything you've said um, and, you know, your time spent working in this field and researching about this, where do you think the discipline is headed? And, you know, with these new existential threats that we're talking about with climate crisis kind of looming over our heads, um, what is the future for conservation finance? How might it be, how might it continue to exist in academic and non-academic spaces? I mean, good question. Um, I am perhaps more optimistic than I should be, but I actually think it's a really good thing. As I'm, I'm a bit of a neoliberalist, and I would say, and you know, I, I don't mean unapologetically. I know there's some real things you want to think about, but I do believe that people are driven largely by wanting to enhance their own well-being, and in this modern culture, we often use economic wealth you know as the as the measure that gives us that freedom i think that if we want to um keep the environment in a way that is healthy for uh, human outcomes and all the other species we share the world with that yeah that's a really good method not so much to you know we got to be careful about the over commodification of nature but we need to have we need to have people have a positive financial interest in good outcomes in nature that's clear there's no other way we can do it. I mean, if there's a negative interest in it, we're doomed. And that's what we've been doing for the last 150 years, isn't it? And so, you know, and, and really at an accelerating rate. So I am quite positive because I think if we can come up with reasonable instruments, with reasonable regulations so no one gets hurt, this is really something that people are looking to do. So yeah, fingers crossed.